organizations themselves have already tons of data that unfortunately is often unused. It's so easy to start from the organization data, then start gathering from outside, and it's good to have both qualitative and quantitative data. Methodology isn't the one that uh, dictates how good a persona you do. Be sure that when you are doing a persona, don't just take any template or tool that is available. Try to first understand what you want to know and then add up. Hello and welcome to DevOps Sauna. Co-founder of Unbound, a Canadian software company, once said, The customer isn't always right, but if you don't listen to them, your product won't be either. When talking about DevOps, people iterate that we need to focus on user needs by amplifying and shortening the feedback loops. But why it is so easy to lose the customer in the heat of product development? That's what we are talking today with Maria Wan, Jarmo Parkinen and Marco Lindgren. The participants ask, what should be done to entice customers to be part of the development process? Join me in the conversation. We are here in the DevOps Sauna podcast. Thanks very much, Maria, Marco, and Jarmo for taking your time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Nice to be here. And we have a very cryptic topic for today, which is lost customer, why we don't know our customer. And as I was preparing myself for this, I knew that there was a quote that relates to this, and I had to go back and look it up. And Sam Walton was a founder of Walmart and Sam's Club somewhere early 20th century. He has been quoted as follows. There is only one boss, the customer, and he can fire everybody in the company from the chairman on down simply by spending his money somewhere else. And that quote has lived on now for a century. And we all know it. Like if we do a lousy job, it's the customers who eventually gets to judge the quality and the output and the value of our work. Yet I hear from you that we lose our sight of our customers. And we know that we have design team, we have UX team, we have ways of constantly reminding our teams and customers about enticing customers or their customers to take them into the development work. But the question is, why is it so that even though there is a century-old expression that everybody knows and everybody agrees, the customer is still lost? And more importantly, what can we do about it? Who wants to start? I do. It's uh, it's my statement and uh, it is, yes, it is a very bold statement. Unfortunately so, it is at least somewhat true in so many organizations. But after all, it boils down to the fact that how the customer is defined. When we talk about customer, we actually mean market, segment, and various kind of personas. But if it's just customer as is, it's actually just talking to whomever. It's just some random person or living being instead of better defined. That's my taking into this lost customer bit. And also for me, uh, coming from user interface and user experience design in digital services, customers often thought that they can be anybody, even when the product or service being sold has quite specific solution to offer. 
and it's not always easy to recognize who is the real customer who will benefit mostly from the solution. And then again, I may be starting to talk only about users who are kind of already taking a customership and not looking at the new customers. Yeah, I agree with with both of you. And then I think, especially nowadays, since uh, we have when you're talking about the software uh, and, and service business, then we have customers who are not paying customers. They are like using this free part of it, and then then we have customers who are paying something for it. So are those customers different? That's also I think an interesting viewpoint. And do we know what makes the customer pay for the product that they're using anyway? Yeah, as a B two B marketer, I have uh, I have to put it out there to begin with. Uh, I have always been extremely distinct between user and customer in the business to consumer segment. It's like when when I'm going and buying a new stereo or a new watch or new car, I am the customer and I am the user. It is me to blame if I make a wrong decision, and I will improve myself to make a better decision next time but in the b2b there is a difference between those two and i always think them very very distinctly are we talking about b2c here are we talking about b2b here or is it all the same both i would say that my background is mainly in b2b side and there is a transformation happening some play millennials but they get blamed for everything, so I don't think it's their fault. Instead, there's a shift happening that people are using these uh, well-done P2C products, and they are accepting the same or even better service in B2C side. And also decisions uh, of purchase get, in a way, personal in many organizations. So there again comes the little bit hazy line between our customer and user. And yes, I also always, I want to ask, are we talking now of the customer or the user? But they are getting more and more mixed. Yeah. And, and, and then when we're talking about knowing the customer, I don't think it's uh, so essential to separate this is a corporate customer or individual uh, consumer customer, because knowing the customer actually defines that then. And I would even bring the customer in a wider perspective. And this is from, an, let's say, a software development team thinking about the customer. It might be the influencer, which is the most important customer for that person. It might be somebody inside the organization. And for those who are in product management, they talk about markets, product market fit. And therefore, for me, the synonym for customer in that case is actually market. Because if we just talk about customer, you're afraid that you might be doing that product development thing only for us one B2B customer. So I would like to totally dismantle the word customer to define so many different things. And as long as you don't know these differences, how to recognize and make differences, what the customer could mean for you as a person and for an organization, I say you're lost. You don't know who you're talking to. You might be just developing for yourself. And that's the biggest scare. Yeah, if I, if I can add that, that to that a bit. So uh, that's like uh, you can find out, you can make user research, you can find out what the customer wants, but you can't possibly really find out exactly what market wants. It's more like vague and more like a fluffy thing. 
And the challenge I sometimes hear being presented with product market fit, and I know, Maria, that you didn't use it in that specific intention, was that when somebody says product market fit, there is this underlying assumption that there's a market somewhere out there and we can take a buy of it. And all we have to do is fit with it. But then there's this alternative point of view, which is there are customer needs and could be there is no market for that yet. And as soon as we discover what those needs are, we can then do almost like a product need fit. And then that market will come to exist, which is more like a category design view that many marketeers have advocated in. Like, don't try to fit yourself into the market. And again, Maria, I know you didn't mean it. What I take away and took away from you, Maria, was demolishing something which is well established is always a bit scary because we have some established conventions. How do we research the market? How do we construe the, the definition of customers? How do we define the market size and all of that? So I'd like you to expand on your on your suggestion that like let's you didn't use those words but like let's redefine or let's start over this this market definition. So talk talk us through on that idea. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, here again, what is a market? <laughs> Let us not go into that, but exactly for me it is so important for organizations to realize that it's just really like whom whom you're talking to, whom you're trying to influence, whose needs are you following? But it's also, like you said, that it could be something new. Usually, it's so common that the users or customers, we don't yet know what we want, but we want it, but we don't know yet what we want. So a good organization, which is a bit of ahead of time, can also look into that. So... For me, I greatly enjoy when I hear companies discussing what their customer is. It's so easy to ask first the companies like, so who is your customer? And they start thinking about it among themselves. And it takes them quite a few hours to realize who their customers are. Although in the beginning, they said that we know our customers. I'm not sure if this answered your questions, but I got just driven away. I really like that part of having set methods to uh, do research because to me the only way to understand the customer and customership is to go where the customers or users or both exist and observe what they are doing. Like for example, I don't know of your case when you are doing shopping, but quite often you don't buy a P2C thing only for yourself. Uh, if it's a TV, it's used by everybody in the household. And even if you like a TV set uh, that has some feature, there may be another family member who at the end of the day makes the decision which TV uh, suits to the interior, etc. So the difference of customer and, and user gets again blurred. And if we don't uh, observe what people actually do uh, when they are making a purchase decision and when they are using uh, the product, even when they are discontinuing the use, uh, then we really don't know who our customers and users are. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, and especially just nowadays, the working, if you're talking about business to business, then the working environment has changed so that actually the those who used to be users who had no saying what was bought or what, what, what they were using nowadays can just bring your own device uh, systems that they can buy whatever computer they want. And then they just like log into cloud systems. And actually, they are now customers and users at the same time, even though we are talking about B2B context. I like the fact, Jarmo, that you brought in kind of influencers in buying or those who are like the stakeholders when buying a TV, for example. But it's the same thing in company decisions, If you, especially if you go abroad. In Asia, it might be an Indonesian grandmother actually doing the final decisions. But in a company, you may not know it because you're dealing with the executives in that company, but it's the somehow the grandma who makes the decisions and if you don't know that your game is lost and in the uh, digital market and services business it's much more harder to say that uh, when and by whom does the decision really happen with a tv that you can point that all right that dude of that tv but uh, for example when there are trial periods in big companies and uh, different kind of analysis and tests and just trying things out are made. Uh, the actual end user may actually be the customer who says that I don't know how to do my work with this thing, but I know that this other thing works because I saw my colleague using or they were using it in my previous working place. So, well, collect data. Yeah, I think the knowing the knowing the user and doing the user research, even though it's tedious and takes a lot of uh, resources and effort, so that's the best way to understand what they're really doing and wanting. I'd like to break down this insight gathering or the the entire process of actually getting to the bottom of what those customers' needs are and how to get them into account when we are delivering and de- developing services. So should we try to put a little more substance behind like what should be done in order for organizations to have this customer on board and to entice the customer to be part of the development? Sure. Why don't I start with a very concrete example? I had a team that I was consulting and a development team, and we decided to do personas for them. And uh, one of the personas that they chose, let's say that his name was Bob, they actually made a cardboard person out of it into their team war room so that they were able to see Bob all the time. And if it has also like the description, what kind of a person Bob was, or what his needs and desires and obstacles, etc. were. So it was a good thing to bring the persona Bob to the room. However, It was there for such a long time that eventually it became sort of a wallpaper because nothing happened to it. Also, many companies have uh, their personas on the wall in papers saying, but if they are constantly there on the wall, do something different for them. Get their hair, their hair done. I mean, change the shirt or try to get the persona a new hobby as long as it fits the persona, just so that they are somehow alive. But of course, everything comes from recognizing, gaining insight, and then putting it into practice and make it a friend, use it. Yeah, bring it to your co- coffee pause and have a chat with the persona there. 
Yeah, I, I think that's it. Also, that not to forget it on the wall is also to take that persona and uh, persona changes uh, in as a, a essential part of the whole development project, so that it's it's a it's checked up and said hi, how are you doing? The persona on a frequent intervals, and that way not forgetting it. To me, one really important thing with uh, personas or any other means to capture understanding of users and customers is that unfortunately what Marco said is true. It is sometimes a little bit costly to have research, but I would like to say that make your personas based on real data and real observations rather than creating imaginary things. So it's much more better to have one persona that reflects real understanding than 10 uh, personas that were invented in the set coffee room. Maybe these guys should be then left to the coffee room and take the one guy who or girl who presents the knowledge and understanding of user or customer or both into the project war room. Yeah, and if I may add to the stereotyping thing is also now, especially since I'm working a lot of with uh, uh, digital accessibility and they, though it's uh, very important to take into account that uh, also this kind of different uh, impairments or disabilities that people have so that we have personas who represent the whole like width and uh, multi diversity of the of the clientele or customer base and and so remember that there's uh, a lot of people who have this kind of a temporary situational or or permanent disabilities and and need to be able to use the service or software anyway we're saying that we have there are so many personas in a company and a- I guarantee once you start digging the data that you have, make it into insights that are, and then create the personas from different perspectives. And not all personas are valid all the time. You don't serve the 25 personas that you may have. Hope you don't have that many, but choose the ones which are closest to you and which are important at that point. But I like the fact that the sort of the customer is sort of dismantled into smaller personas. I personally hate uh, working with personas when they are not based on real understanding and real data. So quite many times I have asked, I heard the question that how many personas should we then have? Um, and I always say that one is definitely better than zero, but then the right number depends on the types of customers and users you are able to concentrate on the given moment. So as Maria said, uh, update them, use them, let them uh, be in the resting position for a while and then take them back again when it's time to uh, concentrate on, on that side of business again. Um, maybe some of that answer is also lies in the maturity of the company. Definitely, yes. And also the also the complexity of the buyer journey. So if it's a very nascent new company and uh, they're just trying to figure out what's best for them and what's best for their customers, then maybe fewer is better. And then when the company gets mature and can address more distinct customer segments, um, they can afford to do more research, then could be that. And for the fact they can address more um, segments and more types of users and buyers, then maybe that's also one way of looking at the right number. It's Lauri again. When producing user insights and making them actionable, some methods are useful when you are planning a new product. 
while others help improve a product with an existing user base. Our folks at Efficode wrote a guide about creating product user insights. The guide introduces various techniques such as user personas, wireframes and prototypes, and user story mapping, just to name a few. You can find a link to the guide in the show notes. Now let's jump back to the conversation. I was actually thinking about this from a statistics perspective. So in statistics, oftentimes we use k-means cluster, which is basically here is the sample. Can you split this to me to five different cohorts? And you, you tell them how many cohorts you want. And then k-means clustering algorithm basically tries to find the sets which are have the, the maximum consistency within the set. And it's maximally distinct from other sets. And uh, if you think persona development, and let's start from this assumption that you're doing it the right way, which is, of course, there's many ways to do it. But one right way to do it is go get to the bottom of the real people who know about these things, who have opinions about them, have deep interviews, have like qual data gathering. And when you discover some insights, then apply quantitative research to that to really get the magnitude of that observation. So when you do something like that, you will inevitably get to a situation where you have a relatively broad quantitative data set that represents your personas overall. And then you do the k-means clustering, either statistically or just intuitively. I sort of presented you one way of developing personas, and I'd like to hear your your thoughts on that, and also this sort of statistics approach for that. I like combining the hard and soft sciences, or having uh, both uh, qualitative and quantitative data. And I'd like to say that what you described is kind of what everybody would love to do, but then there are problems like people are quite complex and getting really to understand the whole customer base via uh, qualitative studies takes lots of time. And during that time, the customer base and the user base already changed because people are also nasty on that that side that they learn new things, they forget unnecessary things. So having the right amount of each type of data is the big question. And I think it goes goes to the point of maturity. So when you are starting this work, start from small and then grow on that knowledge you have gained uh, instead of trying to kind of jump to the end uh, right from the starting point. Yeah, and uh, I I like the statistical approach, but then the, the challenge there is, I guess, that how to make that persona produced by statistics uh, like relatable and uh, actual personal person, and and that's uh, what what Jarmo said about these changes. Then yeah, so people have life changes, so personas also should be valid through these changes of in, in life, like getting a job or getting children or getting out of getting rid of children or what whatnot, and and that way the customers go through these phases, and our personas should also be still valid when they go through those phases. Yeah, I add to whatever was said before is that it's so important to have different kind of research methods to get that data. Organizations themselves have already tons of data that unfortunately is often unused. So you may, it's so easy to start from the organization data, then start gathering from outside. And it's good to have both qualitative and quantitative data 
so that you get uh, as much as possible. So methodology isn't the one that uh, dictates how good a persona you do. It's more likely that be sure that when you are doing a persona, don't just take any template or tool that is available. Try to first understand what you want to know and then add up. Yeah, I subscribe to start from small add up approach. Yeah, from from behavioral economics, it is uh, well established that there are a lot of these um, what are called biases. Effectively, we are not aware of the ways how we make decisions. We are not aware of our needs. And uh, so these can be abstract sort of definitions of what biases are. But I think a very concrete ex- um, example of what bias could be is when we respond to survey, we read a question and we don't understand it. So we conjure a question in our mind that we do understand that is close enough to the question which is presented to us. And then we replace that question which was presented to us with a question we came up ourselves. And then we answer to that question we came up ourselves with the answers, like options given to us. Then we ask, okay, so we do this thousand times and then we come back to the results. And I think if we were to be careful researchers, we should ask ourselves, have our respondent answered to the question we ask or have they answered to completely some other question? And and what if what impact does this bias have in our results? I love that you brought that up. I yeah. totally love it. It's uh, as researchers, it's uh, our scene, but it's also the one who's answering. It's also his or her scene. It's how we understand what is wanted from us or what is asked, but it's also what we want to, what kind of an image we want to portray of ourselves. Is it just kind of wishful thinking? Am I answering something that I would like to be, or am I actually answering honestly? So, and this is where the methodology or the fact that you have so many different kind of methods is so important. This ensures that uh, the biases are lost when you have enough of data. Yeah, I like your optimism when you say people try to answer the, a question which is close to the question they were asked. Not always. People lie. Uh, they totally misunderstand the question. They totally have different vocabulary than the person who is asking the question. So again, one needs to be iterative. And I like it when I can go and observe what people actually do and ask them to uh, tell me why they did that and how will this and that uh, thing affect uh, their next thing they are going to do or will it affect so uh observing what people do are you as a researcher asking the right kind of a question is it oh, honest always, or are always. you already biased i'm, I'm infallible biased. i don't make mistakes that i admit yeah i i think that yeah i agree with that and uh you can ask a question and the person answers the question and and then if you ask uh, more like a little bit more about it then the person might might change the question like so uh, for example when i did research and, and asked if people would rather use a mobile app or website and then they mm. said yeah absolutely people want to use mobile app but then after a small discussion they said that actually they would rather use for important things they would rather use a computer and a website so then what what is important to them they use big but the, for the like casual things they use mobile for uh, mobile app rather so 
that again is actually the answer changed totally when you ask a second question. Great example is this, uh, everything I have filled in, I have answered truthfully. And you usually get that question at the end. Now, my question to you is, when has it happened to you that you have gone back to the beginning of survey and reviewed everything again and basically filled in the survey one more time because you wanted to answer to that question truthfully? There's a result from a research that when you present that question in the beginning of survey, then people actually respond more truthfully than when you present it at the end of the survey. Because what el- what other options do they have? They have already responded to the survey. The only thing other than ditching the whole survey and starting over is to say yes. So first ask them for commitment that they are going to answer truthfully and then present the questions and you are getting more truthful answers. So there's this meta level of, of questionnaire as well. Yeah, if I if I if I may add add to that one, I have also a, one one user research case was like that, and the, I think the best answer was that the, the user said that well, let's say that this means that I I answered truthfully to the best of my knowledge, so then I can put a tap on it. So exactly, the user answered the different question that was asked. Yeah, and I sometimes depending on the questioner, I sometimes ask at the end instead of uh, did you answer this truthfully, I ask like how are you feeling when you answered because then if you've had a bad day the answers may be a bit negative but when you've had a good day feeling then the answers tend to be positive so that's uh, how I've been trying to evaluate the answers. And by the way, is it technically possible to go to previous pages on the on the survey? <laughs> Yeah, usually not. The other, uh, th- these are of course tidbits, but it's it's okay. We can we can throw out some tidbits to our listeners as well. the The other interesting tidbit is the background variables. Often it happens that we ask the background variables first, and then we go to the questionnaire because we feel that if the responses are incomplete, then at least we can analyze incomplete responses with respect to the background variables. But think it again. When you ask background variables, you are reminding your respondents of the kind of categories that they represent. And then they are assuming those sort of category identities. And they are going to respond to those questions or their category identities that they assumed, like socioeconomic status or their age or their gender or their income or any of those they are going to influence to the responses that they gave. Somebody could suggest that if you want more truthful answers, ask the background variables last. That's true. But to add to that, I would say that those demographic questions are last season. Now, at the time of empathy, we don't anymore want to know if you are a man or a woman or something in between and where you're from and what's your age. It's more likely the... Uh, lifestyle of living and your brands and your identity that we are more interested in. But of course, depending what you want to find out. Another tidbit so, to so go against again. So, so I in agree, that case, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was thinking if, if, if you, if you respond that you're a huge fan of Gucci and BMW, will they influence your responses even though they are not socioeconomic statuses? Always a measuring act will have an effect on the thing that is being measured. So I like what Maria said, that I would phrase it a little bit differently, like ask only questions that are relevant to the subject you want to understand. 
So if it is really important to understand that is the uh, person giving the answers in higher income bracket, then yeah, go ahead and ask it. But uh, if it is not relevant, then don't ask it. Yeah, it's not a consolation, but I mean, compiling the questions and what to ask in a survey is a, it's a difficult task and it takes time. So it should be given that time. True. Yeah. Maybe we can start uh, rounding up. I think we have uh, one important question to the listeners, which is what can they take away from all of this? Maybe I'll go first with my repeated message because I love qualitative and quantitative data. Everybody else should too. So gather data. But whatever you do, get some data and then form an uh, idea or expectation or even maybe persona if you are so brave. So observe and analyze information, whatever method is most easily available for you. And only after that, uh, start trying to understand what uh, what you can do next. So build your understanding, build your organization's understanding based on data and wisdom you have uh, gained so far. Yeah, and, and and then use the data to really understand the customer, not not make a like uh, assumptions or ideas that what they are, but really like make uh, bring make real people, real users, real customers there, and remember that there are permutations. There are customers go through different life cycles, and they have their different uh, disabilities and and, and di- different uh, diversity in, in the customer base, and then support the design process so that you really have people there, and they they are known to the development development process and the people who are actually doing the product, so that they understand and know know the personas or ho- however you are creating this character. Okay, maybe my final guidance for you, dear listener, is how to go about is number one. Start by creating a cross-organizational workshop where you define your market, probably you know it, but anyway, your market, segments, and personas. Then, number two, gather data, a lot of it, and some you already have. And third, see what you are missing in the data and fill it in. And then, number four, collect from the data the insights that are valuable that with which you can work on for what so stop assuming start small gather data and refine them to insights and then just do it again and maybe break things in the meanwhile this has been a great conversation thanks a lot uh, maria jarmo and marco for joining thank you thanks it's been great being here thank you Thank you for listening. To continue the conversation with Maria, Jarmo and Marco, head out to the show notes to find their social media profiles. Alongside the profiles, you will also find the links to the content referred in the episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on our platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Finally, before we sign off, let's give the participants floor to introduce themselves. I say now... Take care of yourselves and remember to apply both qualitative and quantitative information to your customer insights. I'm Jarmo Parkkinen. I have been working with usability 
in user testing or usability testing and with other methods uh, to understand the usability of different products. Now, lately, I've, I have been working as a UX and interaction designer, mainly in B2B setting some B2C things here and there. And um, I usually love it when I can work with complex systems where it's really difficult and hard to understand what is happening. That's when I'm at my best. I'm Mark Lindgren. I'm a user experience and accessibility specialist. I've been working with digital services and, and software for like um, over 20 years, uh, always with a, with a user perspective uh, and uh, trying to remember that the user is the most important thing that we are working for. Hello, you. My name is Maria Van. I'm a service design consultant. Uh, my talent and passion is to help companies to bring the customer, or however defined, uh, to the center, side, or wherever the organization strategy defines. I love making a difference in customer experience and customer centricity in within organizations. <laughs>